This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Siri Wilson and Adam Rosenberg speak with Jessica Schreiber and Camille Tegel, co-founders of FabScrap. My name is Siri Wilson, and uh, thank you so much for taking this time out with us. I have a little store in Brooklyn called Treehouse Brooklyn, and we try to make sustainable clothes. We upcycle and do a lot of natural dyeing and things like that. Um, I've been following you guys for a while, and so I was excited when this opportunity came about. Adam, do you want to kick us off? As co-founders of Fabscrap, we're really curious what your inspiration was for starting an operation like this. Um, what kind of professional backgrounds you had that might have prepared you for something like that, and just what your data day-to-day is running things. Hi, my name is Jessica Schreiber. I'll go first. It's funny asking the question that way. I don't feel like anything prepared me for what starting a nonprofit would be like, Um, but my background is in waste management. Um, I studied climate science at Columbia um, and then interned at New York City's Department of Sanitation when they were launching their clothing recycling program, Refashion NYC, and then was hired um, to run and grow that program and then also moved into e-waste and curbside composting and apartment building recycling. And so I've kind of worked in waste management throughout my career. Hey guys, my name is Camille Tegel. My background and career before FabScrap was actually in fashion design. I was an evening wear designer and um, I'm sure you guys can imagine that evening wear in particular is one of the most frivolous categories of apparel in that, you know, those gowns and those cocktail dresses, they really are made and designed uh, for just that one occasion and for one use. And most people almost always get a different outfit or, um, you know, dress or gown altogether for a different occasion. So it was really through that, that time as a designer um, that I learned so much more about waste and kind of the impacts of, you know, what the domino effects of our actions are. Um, And I I love design. It was a great fit for me personally, um, but I think it was just noticing what I was seeing and actually paying attention um, to, you know, what was happening to all these fabrics that were being thrown out season after season, even though they were beautiful and perfectly usable. And Again, you know, working in evening wear, you have, you know, these really, really gorgeous silks. You have these really time intensive hand beaded pieces that are, you know, absolutely beautiful and perfectly reusable. Um, So really it was that, that experience of seeing, you know, if my, if my one company that I'm working with, um, you know, throws all of this usable yardage and, and um, samples and trims and things that could definitely have an extended life. Like, you know, what, what's going on in, in other companies that are doing the same exact thing. And, oh my gosh, wait, this is also happening in LA probably. And this is probably also happening all over the world. And it was one of those moments that I started to question, okay, well, do I wanna keep contributing to, you know, all of these practices and like continue to be um, contributing to the problem or, 
you know, having different skill sets and having like certain ideas of how to get them into the hands of creatives, like, should I pivot and maybe do that? Um, so that was that I think that career, um, definitely that experience would not, um, was necessary, I think, in order for me to, to be where I am today. <laughs> um, and it was, I think it was a very valuable um, segue into, into FabStrap for sure. Yeah, what Camille was experiencing personally, I was starting to hear from a lot of brands while I was at Sanitation, running the city's clothing recycling program. Um, when a fashion company had a question about textile waste, it kind of found its way to my desk. Um, and so there were several brands that wanted to know what they should be doing with their textile waste that wasn't clothing yet. All of the materials wasted during the design process. And it didn't really fit into what I was doing in the post-consumer world, like used clothing, used home goods, shoes and handbags. This was all raw materials. And so there were about 30 brands um, who had the same question. And so I pulled them into a working group. Um, and to their credit, they very non-competitively shared um, what the waste was, how much they were creating, how often, what options they had found for where to send it. And that working group really became sort of the foundation um, for FabScrap. And so it was taking what I knew about the existing nonprofit infrastructure, the collections that I was overseeing at Sanitation, and sort of just tweaking that a little bit so that it could work for businesses and not just for consumers um, and like used goods. Very cool. Um, can you talk us through that textile waste management problem a little bit more and actually how much waste uh, of fabric happens every year? Yeah. Um, so first I'll start on the post-consumer side. So. I think because we're most familiar with that, it's what we wear, what we use, and then what happens when we're done with it. So post-consumer used clothing and home goods and shoes and accessories. In New York City, just our five boroughs, every year we throw out 200,000 tons, which is a lot of zeros. <laughs> um, and where does it go? Um, mostly to landfill. Um, if it's put in the trash, it's very rarely pulled out in any kind of usable condition. Um, there's sort of a growing um, dumpster dive culture where usable things are being pulled out, which is great. But if it's going into landfill or if it's going into the trash and then eventually a landfill, it's probably going to landfill. Um, it's, it's hard to pull it out and save it once it's been put in the trash. Um, and just to put that in context, 200,000 tons is 14 times the weight of the Brooklyn Bridge. And we're throwing that out every single year. And that's just New York City. And so I, nationwide, I think it's 12.8, 12.5 million tons. Um, massive, massive amounts of material. And in New York, it's about 6% of the waste stream. So after you kind of address traditional recyclables and then address food waste, it's the next biggest part of the waste stream. Um, so it is something that like cities that are going zero waste are gonna have to solve for. So we kind of know what those numbers are like because at Sanitation, we opened up bags of New York City trash and sorted it into a bunch <laughs> of categories and then weighed those categories and kind of like extrapolated across the, the total volume collected. So I have very hands-on experience with like how we're coming to those numbers on the post-consumer side. 
What's interesting is that on the business side, what businesses throw away, those studies don't really happen. Unless a business is doing its own waste characterization or its own waste audit, particularly in New York City where there's so many businesses in one building and everything just gets consolidated at the basement of the building. Businesses really don't have a clear picture of what they're throwing away. And as the city, we didn't have a clear picture of what businesses were throwing away. The city didn't pick it up. It's all handled by private contracts, private carters. So because it's so private, um, we actually don't have a good number of how much textile waste is wasted by businesses. We're working with fashion, interior design, entertainment companies, there's tailors and dry cleaners. Like there's so many businesses in New York City that could potentially have textile waste. And we really don't have any great measure of it. Um, the best estimate that we can find that we usually use um, is from the story of stuff by Annie Leonard. And her estimate in the book is that for every pound we throw away, the businesses created 70 pounds of waste upstream. I've heard her speak live and she's a little bit more conservative and says for every pound we throw away, businesses throw away 40 pounds upstream. So even conservatively, it means that commercial waste is 40 times greater than residential, but we're not measuring it. We're not reporting it. We're not studying what's in it or totally sure where it goes. And so that's that was the problem for me that I really wanted to start to dig into and address. Wow. I'll just um, add on to that, that, you know, speaking firsthand of having been, you know, in that design studio and in that, um, you know, participating in, in the waste process. Um, I mean, the mindset is really just that I think is also part of the challenge and also part of the problem. Um, you know, even as designers, even though there is so much development and so many resources that go into creating that fabric that you're designing from, there's such a throwaway culture and mindset to what happens to it once it has been cut and sewn into a garment. And I think that the biggest challenge for us in the education and awareness is honestly just reworking that perspective and having people stop and realize, oh, like there was X amount of water and X amount of resources that actually went into this and that it's something precious and that it's something that really should be treated as valuable because it really is. And I think because a lot of businesses don't don't really think of it like that or see fabric in that way. That's one of the reasons that the tracking of their waste has been non-existent and that it doesn't really even occur to them to even calculate or, or track it at all. I really appreciate the philosophy of trying to change the way businesses think and help them understand the resource expenditure it's going through with these textiles. Um, so FabScrap is a nonprofit organization can you guys tell us about how you settled on that kind of model, what the rationale was behind that? Yeah. Um, so FabScrap started in 2016. Um, I had been working with that working group for about a year and sort of had worked out a business model and worked with some of my friends in that group to figure out a pricing structure that would work. So when I initially pitched it, um, I had pitched it as a for-profit company. Um, going, through, going through sort of the pitch process, which um, in true millennial fashion happened on a TV show, <laughs> um, but going through that process and working with some of the investors, it was clear that like this 
wasn't going to have these um, like immediate returns that a lot of investors would be interested in. And more of the returns were CO2 savings, minds changed, and sort of like the social impact. And so we also considered um, B Corp. And I think why nonprofit makes the most sense and why we ended up going that route is um, I don't think that anyone needs to like own sustainability solutions. So like for FabScrap to do well, and I'm employed by FabScrap, which means that like I will do well, but I don't need to like own a share of that. So I didn't feel the need to like personally own a sustainable solution. Um, I also thought it was really important to, if we don't have owners, it, it allows us to remain a neutral third party. So if we wanted to do things like use all of our data to inform policy, or to create educational lectures or to publish reports. It does give us um, sort of a neutral starting point because there are no shareholders, there's no owners, there's no one who's personally benefiting from that information. And so I think in terms of like both Camille and I, what we really wanted was change more so than to make a lot of money or own the change. <laughs> and so nonprofit made a lot of sense for that and just what our goals were. And I think um, probably the biggest thing I learned is like a nonprofit doesn't mean that you don't make money. It just means that that money stays in the business so that you can continue to do good. You're not making payouts to owners um, and there's no one personally profiting when the business profits. And so I think that too, um, felt best so that like if FabScrap is doing well, it means that FabScrap can continue to grow to do more good and sort of like continue to solve the problem. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think for us, it works best that way. Um, I think we're a little different than the traditional nonprofit because I pitched it for profit and I also was not comfortable with fundraising and grant writing. It just like wasn't my wheelhouse. I wanted to make sure that we were financially sustainable from our own sources of revenue. So while we do now write grants and do fundraise, those are mostly for moments of growth. So like um, opening in Philadelphia, when we opened our shop in Manhattan, those are the results of fundraising, but being able to operate and like pay rent, pay our staff, that is coming from service fees and fabric sales. And I think that's where we differ from most nonprofits is we're not publicly funded entirely. Actually we're 80% or sometimes more self-funded, um, which is unique. Um, but I also think it's important because like you were saying that corporate accountability, the fact that we're funded by service fees from the brands and selling fabric to the next generation of designers means that the industry is funding the change. It's not coming from taxpayers. It's not coming from the public. The public isn't creating the fashion waste problem, at least where we're working on it on the pre-consumer side. That's not something that like the public has any say, on, say in or control over. And so it was really important to me that like the industry funded the solution. And so by having service fees in the large part, that's how we got the brand side involved. And then I think providing a sustainable fabric option also helps to educate the next generation of consumer or designer. Wonderful. And could you, um, for those that don't really know what, how FabScrap works, could you just sort of give us like, uh, if you wanted to get some fabric at FabScrap, how that would, how that whole process works? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll kind of just um, in full circle, in a full circle way, kind of describe our different operations um, because there are a lot of different ways that people can get involved with us. So um, I guess at the at the very beginning is really the pickup, right? So um, if you imagine like cardboard or plastic recycling, how you know a truck shows up at, at you know, a business and carts away the, the waste. That's a very similar way in which our pickups work in that we come directly to a designer's studio or office and um, they have filled bags that we've provided to them with their textile waste. And then uh, we take it to our warehouse. Uh, we provide them two different types of fab scrap bags. Um, one of them is black colored and one of them is brown. The black is actually for anything that is proprietary in nature. So if there is a fabric where a print has a logo designed into it, and that's something that they would rather not have the public sort and see, um, then that's something that they can choose to put into that black fab scrap bag so that when it enters our warehouse, we know without any question, this is something that has to be sorted by the fab scrap team only. Um, you know, it can't go into a reuse room. Like this is definitely proprietary nature off limits. Um, if they do put it into a brown bag, then that we know volunteers um, and the public can sort and see if it's really cool and interesting. We can snap a photo and share it with our community. Um, it can, if it's large enough, um, we can put it into our, our thrift store system for reuse. Um, so it's a great way to kind of accommodate that very specific creative challenge that a lot of design companies, whether it's fashion or interior or entertainment, definitely have concerns towards. Um, and then, so once everything's collected from those brands and it enters our warehouse, everything is meticulously weighed and measured and, and cataloged because we want to make sure that we're also, you know, as we've talked about, there hasn't been any tracking and any data um, in the commercial sphere. And so we feel like that's definitely something that we need to take to um, keep track of and, and understand so that we also understand what our impact is. Um, so everything is, is weighed um, and put into our system. And then really at that point, it's figuring out, okay, what is inside these bags so that we can figure out how to keep it out of landfill. So the, I guess like the easier and faster part of it is identifying anything for reuse. So anything that could be put into um, resale or thrift is anything that's large enough. So usually yardage, um, bigger cuttings that are like two yards, um, trims or any sort of like embellishments, um, any leather hides, um, yarn cones, things like that. Um, those are pretty easy to identify and separate for reuse. Um, the things that are a little bit more difficult are those sewing scraps um, that come from actually making the garment or um, from the cutting rooms. So those um, and also headers, which are um, for those who are not as familiar, those are basically fabric swatches that mills will send to design teams as a way to kind of show their collection, their fabric collection and try to get orders um, from designers. So a lot of those are a lot smaller and a lot more difficult to be reused. Um, those we separate by fiber type. Um, and this is important because anything that does not contain spandex um, actually ends up getting downcycled into different forms of insulation or um, first shoddy and then um, that shoddy becomes different types of insulation. Um, but that is also really important because we want to track um, any of the fibers that has potential for fiber to fiber recycling. 
we also want to sort at that time and make sure that we're tracking, um, you know, how much 100% polyester are we receiving per month or um, per year? And then how much 100% cotton, 100% wool? Um, so one of the reasons that, you know, we try to already sort for this, even though that technology isn't available, is so that we also have the data and the numbers to be able um, to provide when that technology is available. Um, and then after the sorting, um, then we end up, um, of course, going into like our reuse area. So what you guys mentioned about if someone's interested in shopping with us, um, anyone can enter any of our warehouses or um, shop online with us even, or even through Instagram. But um, we have a whole system set up for um, anyone who wants to shop with us. Um, it's pretty simple. We pretty much sell it by yard or um, if it's you know a trim or if it's um, leather, we sell it, we price it out um, per piece. Um, but that I think is probably one of the more important parts in terms of um, having people gain access to all of these fabrics that typically were thrown to landfill and not even accessible to the public at all. Being able to have that um, at thrift store pricing is really important for us in order to fully redistribute all these um, textiles and materials that previously would have gone to landfill um, and getting it into the hands of those who could really benefit from it. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, going back to how you sort the different various uh, fabrics, and uh, do you guys take into consideration the the supply chain involved in the making of those fabrics? I think I think one of the reasons that Fab Scrap has been so successful is that we have a pretty niche focus in that we're working with designers on pre-consumer textile waste. And so because we're focused on that piece, we can be experts there in like what options exist end of life, how to best sort things, what can be reused and what can't. And I think if we started to dabble in earlier in the supply chain or start to make judgment calls based on like what happens prior to us receiving it, um, I think we're gonna lose some of that focus. And so for us, it's sort of like once it arrives to us, what do we do with it? And so, I mean, there's, there's definitely an overall criticism of recycling that like recycling tends to just be a band-aid because why should I stop using plastic bottles if I can recycle plastic bottles? And so it doesn't actually change behavior. Um, and so in that way, that's where we're really trying to share with designers what can be recycled, what can't be recycled and should be avoided entirely, um, what is most easily reused, what fiber to fiber technologies are in development and what exists. Um, and we do sort of look at end of life impacts as opposed to pulling the oil that makes petroleum, that makes PET. We're kind of looking at what happens to PET when people are done with it. Or let's look at the water and the land used to make the cotton. We're kind of looking at like what happens with cotton when you're done with it. And so that's, that's more where we're focused only because to do a life cycle analysis <laughs> from start to finish of all of those fabrics um, can be done. In theory, it's, it's a lot. Um, and so for us, we're really focused end of life. And then where we try to work up through the supply chain is in educating the designers about what end of life options exist. Because it's not just important for what happens with their scraps, but if they're deciding to make a garment with that fabric, 
that influences whether or not that consumer can later recycle it or that product, when it goes to landfill, what happens to it? And so there's an element of extended producer responsibility in what we're doing because we really want the designers to be thinking about end of life while they're starting the design process so that it's something that consumers have an easier time to repair, mend, deconstruct, keep forever, et cetera. Um, so I think you know, we're mostly focused <laughs> on that end of life piece and where we can knowing about the total impact there. I will say because there's not a lot of studies on the environmental impact of specifically textile waste, some of the impacts that we're finding is if you're reusing that fabric, it's saving the impact of creating more virgin. And so that's where some of the environmental savings comes from is actually avoiding that um, initial resource use as opposed to like totally understanding what's being avoided at end of life because there's just not as, as there's not as much research in that area. So some of our impact is a little bit focused on the resource use side, just because by reusing fabric, we're avoiding that virgin material. I hope that made sense. Yes, that totally made sense. Okay. Um, yes, and, and also it's interesting that you say you're also having these relationships with the companies, uh, these dialogues, um, and, and there's an educational piece in there as well, which is great. We try. Um, <laughs> we try. I'm sure it's challenging. I mean, it's a very old system, right? Well, and, and the, cons the consumer speaks louder than we do. So I think, I think for them to hear from us is one thing, but then for consumers to be asking for the same or wanting to see the same info um, speaks louder than, than us. But on that note, you guys are growing, very exciting changes. You're opening up a new studio, studio warehouse um, in, in Philadelphia. Uh, it's a relationship with Urban and Nordstrom, correct? Um, could you guys tell us more? Yeah, we um, are mid setup of our Philadelphia location. It opens uh, November 15th. Um, by the time this airs, you can volunteer or you can sign up to come shop at the new Philadelphia location. Um, that happened through a grant from Urban and Nordstrom. Um, Urban had been using our service in New York and shipping their fabric scraps for recycling from Philadelphia, where their headquarters are. And I think they've been really interested in the model that we're building and the resource that it creates for the creative community and for other fashion companies. And they asked, um, do you have any plans for other locations? Would you consider Philadelphia so that we could drop off our waste with you instead of ship it to New York? And so that's sort of how that conversation started. Um, and then we were working with Nordstrom and they wanted to help support that second location as well. So that grant helped us bring on the um, transportation company and partner that we're using and launch our partner portal, which makes it a lot more convenient and transparent for brands to request pickup, track pickup, and then see all of their data in real time. Um, so between Urban and Nordstrom, we're sort of moving in a way that we're making everything more accessible for brands and, um, and for creatives. 
And honestly, Philadelphia has been such a welcoming city. And so much of that is also because of, you know, the partnerships that we have here and that we've built um, with the design schools and with the designers here. Um, so it's kind of a really amazing way to, to test out an expansion um, because we do feel like we have um, a lot of a lot of our community who's already here um, who can help introduce us to other creatives um, and other people who would who would love to be part of our mission. Um, but yeah, it's it's been really amazing to see how you know Drexel and um, Moore College and Thomas Jefferson um, how all of their students already have you know, such a sustainable mindset and approach to their design. And I think there's a lot happening in the city that really speaks to, you know, more pro proactive and more proactive steps and more initiative towards wanting change. And so I think it's a really amazing time um, that we're coming into the city and honestly can't wait to meet more people who are more than welcome in our space um, and we can't wait to meet them. And I, I think when you think of Philadelphia, you don't immediately think fashion, um, but we've been surprised at how many companies have requested service and we're working with to start recycling with us. And it does also extend our ability to provide service into parts of New Jersey and into Baltimore and DC. And so it does give us a reach further along the East Coast and into the Mid-Atlantic um, so that we're really reaching a lot of different companies and a whole new um, population of designers and, and makers. Moving on from that, what do you guys think is what's needed to move sustainability beyond a buzzword in fashion and textile and actually create systemic change? Is that the responsibility of producers, businesses, consumers? What's that look like? Systemic change. You want to take that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, I think we kind of we kind of started to address it a little bit um, in in the previous question about how you know a lot of a lot of the commercial waste um, really is our decisions you know made by companies and a lot of um, that initial like change and responsibility there is is really just rethinking design approaches and um, thinking beyond just you know step one of like ordering the fabric like let's let's think actually like a few steps in front of like what happens to that particular piece once it's fully made and finished um and after it's been purchased like what happens when the customer no longer um has any use for it like what happens then and i think that's part of like kind of the mindset and part of that responsibility we talked about um earlier in the interview is just you know, having that mindset and that shift into perspective can consider those other steps rather than just like what's directly in front of them. Um, and I think overall, just in general, like everyone's guilty of this, of, you know, not fully understanding the domino effects of their actions. So I think in terms of our education and awareness, it's, it's honestly just like shining a light on, you know, what happens to our waste you know, after it's been picked up and carted away. And I think that's kind of where a lot of our, our waste management is almost too good at their jobs. It's because it's like fully out of sight and out of mind. And honestly, when you come to Fab Scrap and you, you see all of what we've collected and all we have to sort through in one place, that's when it really hits you of like, oh my gosh, like all of this is accumulating somewhere. And that's literally why we have climate change. 
Um, so, you know, whether it's people who are needing kind of to cover like square one basis of sustainability, or if it's people who are a bit more advanced, on, honestly, I think everyone just needs a slight shift in their perspective. And that that alone, like, kind of incites a lot of different changes in, in how processes are. And I think we, we even mentioned earlier too how fashion itself is very antiquated in a lot of ways that it you know, runs its sampling and its production. Um, and so I think with the education that we do and, and shining light on what happens and what like some of the, um, I guess, consequences are, that's where we really try to push in terms of like the thought of, okay, well, how can we completely not like completely upend everything, but like, how can we shift enough to where we're breaking some of that cycle? I will add um, a couple layers just in working more with the brand partners. Um, I hear from them quite a bit that there's a, a growing pressure from their consumers to be more transparent, to talk about their environmental footprint, to share what steps they're taking, and customers wanting to shop their values and support companies that they feel like care about anything, whether that's environment or the people in their supply chain, et cetera. And so there is a lot of pressure um, on the companies right now to start to answer those questions. And so I think it's great that there's an, a more informed consumer who's asking those questions and um, placing that pressure because I do see the impact on the brand side. Um, I think we have to be careful of sort of greenwashing and lowest common denominator there. And that's where I feel like for real system change will probably move in, in the realm of policy um, because to answer to a consumer is mostly marketing. And I think for there to be something behind the marketing claims and the data and the like system change to back it up, we probably need some policy and accountability. And so that's where I think having the information that we have can help inform policy that is effective in the impact that it wants to have, but it's also realistic in what brands can do and what the system can handle right now. If we were to ban clothing from landfill tomorrow, there's not a nonprofit structure, I don't think anywhere in this country that could handle that volume of clothing waste. There's just not. Um, it's not as um, commodified as like plastic or cardboard um, or even glass, which isn't great in the commodity streams right now, but those things have just been privatized and become a commodity stream for so much longer than textiles. Um, and so textile recycling and textile waste has a long way to go before it's at a level where the volume that exists can be properly handled if laws like that were to be put in place. I do think some policy too can just help close loopholes like, um, a lot of the destruction that happens because there was overproduction and they don't want to donate it because then something that was just in stores is now in thrift stores and so it's slashed and thrown away or it's incinerated. I think there's policy that can close some of those tax loopholes for destruction or close loopholes around mutilated samples um, because those are cheaper to import than sellable pieces. So I think there's also some policy that can do a lot to push the needle and, and just kind of raise the floor. Like the people who want to market sustainable, like their sustainability claims are kind of reaching one customer base, but that doesn't change 
the floor of what's acceptable in the industry. And so I think really we have to make some regulation that, that holds more people, like more companies accountable. Yeah, very true. I'm curious to hear more. You mentioned that your brand partners are saying they're feeling a lot of external pressure from consumers. I'm curious to hear more about what your dialogue is like with the people who are supplying material for you guys. Um, yeah, I, um, <laughs> it runs a gamut. There's definitely, um, where to start? Let me, let me think <laughs> about the best way to start that question. Um, okay. So like I said, where we have to be cognizant that there's brands who really want to make changes and sort of take sustainable steps forward for the good of the industry and are actually leading in the space. There's also brands that are just looking for the quick fix because they want to say something to customers. And we can kind of tell based on how that conversation goes, sort of their intention of starting to recycle with us. Attention aside, if they're recycling with us, it's a step forward. Um, so we don't usually have any kind of filter on like, if you're making that decision to recycle, we are here for you to do that. Um, and so we, really will accept any company with textile waste with open arms if they want to make that change. Um, then there's some that are much more interested in where does it go? Um, how is it being used? And so there, I think they're really interested in the data. The data is a bigger selling point than I even realized like when I started. Um, I think that transparency is really important for brands, whether that's for internal decision-making or for marketing the the data is really what's important. Um, and I think it also helps justify the service fee. For example, if you were throwing away 5,000 pounds of fabric, you're not gonna share that. But if you send it to Fab Scrap, now you can share that, you have a whole story that you can tell about it. And so it helps justify some of the, the service fee. Um, I will say probably with brands, the biggest pushback that we get is on price. And I think it's because we're a nonprofit. And so the first thing they say is, we wanna donate our fabric scraps to you. And we immediately change that to, we would be happy to help you recycle your fabric scraps. Um, for us, donation implies that there is usable value for the nonprofit receiving it to either resell it or use it. Um, and a lot of what we receive is small pieces that are not reusable and need to be shredded and recycled. And we pay for that. Um, there's the labor involved to sort it. And then we pay to bring it to the shredder. We pay the shredder to shred it. So um, the same way that companies pay for trash pickup or paper recycling or plastic recycling, we're just asking that they pay for textile recycling and start to internalize the cost of that waste in their business. And so I think sort of walking them through that as sort of like, this is the cost of doing business, especially in New York City, where if 10% of your 10% or more of your waste is textiles, you're legally supposed to be recycling them. There's like no enforcement of that, but that law does exist. <laughs> um, walking them through that, I think, I think is more helpful. And then if it's usable, like a bunch of leather skins or rolls of dead stock fabric, that is a donation and that we accept for free and we will come pick it up and we will make it easy for you. We're also giving you the data on that. So really trying to make it clear for brands like what is waste and what is reusable and what's a donation. 
So there's, there's a lot of education that sort of happens as part of the onboarding of brands. Um, and then it's more so sometimes we'll get in the question of why, like why Fabscraft, how'd you find out about us? And that's where we hear this feedback from consumers. Um, and then we let brands choose um, whether or not we share their name and logo. And that's usually interesting too about the brands that are ready to share um, and wanna be really public about the steps that they're taking and the brands that prefer to keep it more internal. Yeah, Our, just, oh, excuse me, go ahead. I was just gonna say, um, I will just add to that, that it, the response from the industry has been fairly supportive. Um, and I think it is a mix of both, like, you know, they do feel that pressure from consumers and honestly, recycling with us is a very simple step to make um, that they can call a sustainable step. Um, but so much of how we're, how, so much of how our service is set up is literally catered to these businesses and to how they operate. So especially having been a designer, like you can't ask for more things to be taken care of. Like we show up at their door, <laughs> you know, we take care of the transportation, you know, we um, provide a full, beautiful, like data report that like, you know, summarizes their entire um, recycling with us and what that means in terms of, um, you know, carbon offset and trees planted. And we do a lot of that tracking and that um, data collection that we mentioned before is something that isn't really top of mind for a lot of these companies. Um, and then, you know, like Jessica had mentioned as well, like if they, you know, want to share more about the story and to be more transparent about like, you know, what happens when they do send their fabric to Fab Scrap, um, then that's definitely a, a pretty good opportunity for them as well. And um, factoring in the service costs, um, like we just mentioned as well, is not too far off from what they, what they pay anyway um, for their trash and recycling. And so it's really, like Jessica just said, um, you know, breaking it down even further to now there's like a separate category for textiles. And so there's really like not too much, um, I guess, against a company for that decision to recycle with us just because of how we set it up and how our service works. There's two more things that that made me think of, Camille, is one with a lot of brands, it's consumer pressure, but it's also their employees. The, like the people who work at the companies mm -hmm. want to feel good about where they're working and they are recycling at home and they're doing what they can. And then they go to work and they want to work someplace where they feel like they can continue those habits. Um, so there's, we've heard from several companies that there's a lot of employee engagement around the program and the employees are really excited about it. And we've done lunch and learns where we're like giving the whole overview of the textile waste landscape and where it goes and how it works. So I think it's not just seeing everyone as a consumer, like they're also working with their employees every day and want to make sure that they are also aligned with what their employees want. And then, yeah, to Camille's point, I think we've been um, pretty well received in, in that we haven't had to do a lot of cold calls and like hard selling to brands. Um, we're still five years in responding to demand for service. I would say we get anywhere between 10 to 20 new companies inquiring about service every week. And so they all get service agreements and then sort of that process will like weed some people out. 
Um, but we're still responding to demand for service. And I think that's A, we do try and make it super easy and convenient and transparent. But B, I think anyone who works in an industry with textile waste, like interior design or fashion or costume and set design, when they hear what we, what we do, they immediately understand it. And they immediately recognize the problem that it's solving. And they've been hoarding things under their desks or in closets or trying to give it away to their friends and family and students. And so they immediately understand that this is a resource that can solve that problem for them. It's really exciting the amount of demand is for your guys' service. Uh, are brand partners looking to FabScrap for sustainability advice? What are you What are you telling people on that front? Are there any pressures that you're putting on across the board? <laughs> um, I will say we are not at this point functioning as sustainability consultants. I think uh, encouragingly, a lot more brands are now creating sustainability teams and hiring specific sustainability positions. When I first started five years ago, that was definitely like, this person does design and sustainability. <laughs> and so it was definitely like an afterthought or an and, or like a side club almost of like, these are the people in the office who care about sustainability. And now it's a position and a title or a whole team that's working on this within the company. And so seeing that shift, is really exciting. Um, and then I forgot the questions. <laughs> what was the original question? Um, yeah, are people, are your brands coming to you guys? Oh, yeah, for advice. Um, so yeah, I think we're not providing that consulting role. Um, they're hiring people to do that, which I think is best case. And a lot of times they're bringing in third party for environmental impact work. Um, yeah, we're not, right now providing that kind of consulting for their whole supply chain or for sustainability in their buildings or within their offices. Where I do think we can move in that direction is specifically end of life and sort of helping to choose fabrics. There's a lot of probably consulting that can be done to choose a fabric based on its construction and its source of material, but then choosing a fabric for how it breaks down or how long it lasts or how it can be recycled or not is a part two. And so I think eventually we'll have enough information where we can help be decision makers there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the other piece, I guess, is we're really tackling recycling and reuse but what we want to do is reduce it. So not, we'll keep providing the Band-Aid <laughs> that recycling is, but it would be really great to actually reduce the waste. And so that's where I think we're moving as sort of like a fab scrap phase two is continuing to redistribute and reuse, continuing to recycle what we can, but if we could reduce the waste that's coming to us in the first place, that's really, really the goal. And 75% of what we receive are the swatches that Camille talked about, the like six inch pieces of fabric that mills into brands to say, here's all of our fabrics for the season. Sometimes it's solicited from brands, sometimes not. They just arrive and then they'll keep the ones they want and throw out the rest. So 75% of what we receive from companies are swatch cards and headers. They also take the most time to sort for recycling. We have to remove staples and stickers and tape and cardboard. We're sorting by fiber type because we can't shred spandex. So it's about 
10 pounds an hour on average. Um, so what we want to do is work with brands to work with their mills to provide that information in a different way. I think there's a lot of different ways that that can happen and creating a working group again would be really fantastic with some of the leaders among our brand partners who really care about the work that we're doing, who really want to see change, bringing some of their like most progressive and favorite mills to the conversation as well. And maybe it just starts with when you use staples, it adds this much time. Can we move to tape instead? Maybe can we remove that plastic hanger on top? Can we go to all cardboard? Could we forego headers entirely and send that information as a PDF? That would be great. <laughs> and instead, I think the ultimate goal would be sample yardage because that is reusable. Um, so that's where we wanna move. And that's not necessarily consulting, but I think that's kind of the conversations that we wanna lead and the guidance that we wanna provide and information and sort of like research that we could do to help move the industry in another direction. Very cool. Um, we also know that FabScrap is doing some pretty robust data keeping. How are you guys able to quantify the, the benefit that you guys have created so far? Uh, so like I mentioned before, there is not great research or data on the impacts of end of life of textiles. And part of that is because a lot of it is post-consumer and we're working pre-consumer. And so those are two different waste streams. Even on the post-consumer side, there is infinite number of blends. And so it's really hard to say like a t-shirt has this impact or a pair of jeans has this impact end of life because they're all made so differently. Um, and there's so much that happens during the use of the garment. They all have different dyes and finishes. And so it's really hard end of life to sort of like quantify an impact in landfill. So a lot of the impact at end of life is if this fiber or this piece of fabric or this material continued its life and could be reused or continued use, what virgin resources are being saved. And so that's where a lot of the impact comes from. And so for us, we say every 10 pounds that you Every 10 pounds of fabric that you save from landfill by purchasing it at FabScrap has the same CO2 reducing equivalent as planting a tree. I hope that came full circle, um, but it's coming from the EPA um, warm model. If you just like Google the EPA emissions calculator, um, that's where we're getting the equivalent trees planted. We could also we could also quantify it in like cars off the road or light bulbs turned on or like TVs powered for however many times. But I think Trees Planet is like the, the most um, tied to nature, which is the whole point is that this like affects the planet. Um, and then the actual CO2 metric that we're using to get to that CO2 savings is from a study that was done in the UK specifically on pre-consumer textiles. It's the only one that I've been able to find. Um, and it included a pretty good range of blends. So cottons and polys and then a mix of blends. Um, and so that is where we're getting our metric of pounds of clothing diverted from landfill to CO2. And then the EPA gives us CO2 to trees planted in a very roundabout way. I wish we had better data. I wish we had more current data 
um, if anybody has that, we are all ears. You can DM me or email us. <laughs> and I'll Perfect. just add in to that, um, you know, when we do um, kind of recap these numbers, we also recap them individually for each brand partner that recycles with us. Uh, I think I mentioned before that we give them their own individualized impact report. So um, we're up to about 600 clients now, right, Jessica? Um, so for each, each uh, brand partner that has signed up for our service, um, we are able to give them essentially like their own report card that totals um, the amount of pounds that they've recycled with us in that year. Um, we break that down into how much of it was reusable, how much of it ended up being recycled. And of course, um, those, those metrics that she just mentioned um, for each brand partner. And then of course, um, as a whole for Fab Scrap each year, we have our annual report, uh, but that's like Fab Scrap's impact as well for that year. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for your time, first of all. Uh, anything additional that you two wanna add? Yeah, the volunteer community that we have has been one of the best and most surprising things, I think about the growth of Fab Scrap. When I started, I was reaching out to people I knew at brands and I was reaching out to people who I knew were using fabric in home sewing or like new work projects. But then people would hear about what I was doing. And I think Camille feels the same way, but they weren't sewers and they didn't work at brands, but they still wanted to help. And so I basically said, well, you could come help us sort the material for recycling if you want. Um, and just as a thank you, I let some of those first volunteers take home some fabric for free. Like as you're sorting, you find a bunch of cool stuff that you want to keep. Um, and so it started with just one day a week, we'd have people come into the warehouse and help us sort. And then it grew to where we didn't have enough tables for everybody. So now it's two days a week, then it became sort of every day and signups. And so now we have um, 10 to 12 spots two sessions a day, every day of the week. And we've had over 7,000 individuals come and volunteer to help us sort material, um, which is mind blowing. And the coolest part of that is that one in six has come back more than once. We've had a couple of volunteers who have been in our warehouse 50 times to volunteer. And so I think it's so great because it's really helping us move through the material it's helping our volunteers to access free material. We still give every volunteer five pounds of fabric for free. And if you're a fashion student, that's, that's a lot and it's free. You're getting some trend forecasting. You're learning about fabrics as you do it. You're learning about your industry and the waste and starting to see it as a resource. Um, so the volunteer program has just been a really integral part of how we operate. Um, and so I, it's, it's cool to see that grow and really cool to bring that to another city. Yeah, and what, what I've really loved to see is it's really just everyone from all walks of life, like all ages, all backgrounds. Um, like Jessica mentioned, they aren't always in fashion. Um, it's just really everyone who really aligns with our mission, who cares about sustainability and is looking for a way to take action. And so I think it's been honestly really inspiring to see just how many people come to volunteer and also come back to keep volunteering. Um, that's been honestly very encouraging and uplifting and like fashion or other creative industries um, are usually a little bit clickish. And it's kind of great to see that when people come into FabScrap, they are doing like their own little networking and it's a lot more of a, oh, you're like, you know, 
you also care about this issue. Like we're on the same page here and then there's an immediate bond. And I think that the networking component has been um, really amazing to see as well. And again, it's just like people from completely different backgrounds who aren't necessarily in um, fashion or even sustainability, but have like those interests all coming together and really, really, you know, as a team working towards our mission. And I think that's been really beautiful to see. And totally making a difference for us. Um, volunteers sort all of the non-proprietary material that comes in. So it's, it's super meaningful to us when people are able to give their time to help us work through that. Thank you so very much. Thank you guys. We covered a lot of ground. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having us. <laughs> We appreciate our loyal Impact Report listeners and hope you can help us spread the word about the series and the important sustainability work of our guests. Please rate and review the Impact Report wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you were inspired by this conversation, share a screenshot to your Instagram account and tag Impact Report Podcast. To volunteer and learn more about Fab Scrap, follow them on social media at fab underscore scrap and visit them online at fabscrap.org. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, December 17th. We'll be speaking with Monik Suri, founder and CEO of Therma. Interested in learning how you can launch a high-impact, purpose-driven career in sustainability? Check out the resources page from the Bard Graduate Programs in Sustainability for access to free resources to jumpstart your career in sustainability. Hear from leaders in the fields of climate change, consulting, impact finance, fashion, circular economy, and more about how they launched their careers and the tips they have for you to join their industry. Visit gps.bard.edu resources today.